Uh, welcome back to the New Rainbow Cast podcast with me, Autistically Young. The first in this series of new episodes, a new podcast series in this field, field titled Disabled in America, which I will bring you a series of special episodes dropping in the months ahead of the next American Palestine election happening in next November. Over these coming months ahead, I'll be uh, looking look to speak to different disabled people in America around uh, the issues of politics and economics in America, listening to the lived experiences of lives of disabled people in America, Bloomberg in various politics, economics, activists, advocates who know about life in America, being disabled life in America, and it's America, as you may know, it's a nation that proclaims itself to be one of the greatest nations of, of the world, and is, you know, like as part of its patriotism that is highly divisive right now in America, where we're hearing a lot about partisan politics and the personality politics, but in the international sphere, hear a little about the politics of policy, politics of people, which is something that, as I said, is lacking in, in the mainstream international media, and something that I wish to explore as an outsider who is based out in Britain, to explore to understand what life is like for disabled people in America who are underrepresented in the media and marginalised in America, that, you know, international divided by class, racial and generational inequalities and uh, social division, which is proven to be quite problematic within the campaign of the next election. As I said, it's one of well, it's one of the wealthiest nations on this planet, and yet, and yet, as I said, there's so much inequalities that people have to fight and fight for to get what they need in America. With so many push-ups and so many hardships, why there is need for organisation, active activism. As this series will explore, you may be familiar with the uh, work of the Crickler Vote campaign. And for my awareness, yes, there is a lot of problems for disabled people in America, but it's an issue that they seem the greatest amount of collective activism working within the disabled community for social media with the campaigns of Crickler Vote which you may be familiar with, and uh, the hope to answer in this series of episodes to speak to journalists, political campaigners, uh, policy makers, and if you have anybody that you think that would be great to come on this podcast, as I know we've got listeners in America uh, that listen to this podcast, if you got anything that you anybody that you know would be great for the podcast that you, you would like to see me interview just enter at email in Nemo Rainbow at NemoRainbowProject dot com. If you got any comments, correspondence or and ideas for the podcast, just email that same email or you can be able to find out by going to www.nemorainbowproject.com dot com how to uh, find out how to uh, find out how to contact the podcast as you would like to hear from American listeners of what you would like to the world to know about living in America as a disabled person things that people should know about American life when it comes to disability and different sex communities. And if you also got any questions like that, uh, for other nations, like 
for myself in Brittany, I'll be able to answer some of those questions. And I, I will also, you know, be looking to, to wear similar series. Because Britain is also heading for its general action next year. The latest being for it is on the level 2025. But there's potential for a spring or similar election. Wherever I would hope to do the same, exploring means of looking at in the politics, economics, social factors of disabled people in Britain, speaking journalists, uh, politicians, political campaigners, and, you know, other people who know the policies of Britain, flowing, delving deep out life in politics in the UK that be featuring more on a podcast in 2024 and then after as a point of keeping this podcast going for the next year and so that's a taste about for some of the stuff I hope to do with the podcast but also I have another idea that you'll be able to if you've got any ideas if you want to contribute to the new Rainbow Project if you've got any Things that you would like to write an article about for a new rainbow project talk on website, ideas, things that could preach on social media. If the government puts an article I'm going to feature on the website and the rainbow reads, I'll like to be able to take any press, some ideas, contributions. So if you've got any ideas like that, please let me know. But back to this episode, as I said, this is the first in the series uh, with a guest called Ola Ojimi Moore. Uh, Ojimi, even, I think. That's how her name is pronounced. Sorry if I, if I mispronounced it. But Ola will be chatting about her experience as a disabled woman, a uh, black disabled woman in America chatting about her work where she's uh, founded a non-profit organisation to her disabilities, chatting about her disabilities and her work on the Capitol Hill in America as well as some journalist work. She's been able to do some commentator in American politics but unlike some of the guests in it the new rainbow cast feed. Uh, she doesn't have any more divergent condition, but has a physical disability part. Disabled in America series be opening them. This podcast to chat into other people within a disabled community. But of course, I'll be still keeping up with regular interviews, exploring our lives and new divergent people on this feed. As is usual. So let's get into it. Hi, my name is Ola OJ Wumi, and I'm a disability rights activist in the United States. And I am the founder and director of the education nonprofit project Ascent. All right, thanks for introducing yourself and about your work as a in the like the nonprofit sector of as you said you work with the organisation and in terms of supporting people with their education. When we were discussing about having you on, normally I interview people who are neurodivergent, so have conditions like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia. But as you said yourself, you don't have a neurodivergent condition. But I thought I would get you on. Regardless, because we want to be able to explore some of the wider issues around disability, as there's so many different overlaps and, you know, different ways that the neurodivergent community intersects with the, the, the community who have chronic illnesses to physical disabilities. And as you say yourself, you have uh, physical disabilities, but also some, some hidden disabilities. So we want it's like the things I'm going to talk, be able to focus on is like some of the areas of, I'll say that, talking about some of the America 
like life in America as a disabled person. So do you want to give an introduction of like your like your background as a disabled person? Okay, I'd love to. I actually acquired my disability as a child. A lot of people ask me, were you born that way? Not all disabilities are the same. And being disabled is the one community you don't have to be born into to join. It's the one identity that you can become at any time. I was diagnosed with a rare heart condition when I was nine years old. Things unfortunately spun out of control and I ended up becoming the recipient of a heart and kidney transplant at age 11. And my disabilities include limited mobility. Though I can walk, I, when I walk, I look like how it's a stereotypical able-bodied person, but my issue is distance. I can't walk short distances, so I require the assistance of a motorized wheelchair. And that changed my life significantly. I can vacillate between two communities as someone who can appear able-bodied in certain places, and in other situations, I can't because I'll need to use my wheelchair. But I noticed many barriers in terms of accessibility. America is celebrated. This week is the anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we're celebrated as a country for the advancements that we've made for disability rights. But that's just the beginning. There are so many parts of our infrastructure as a nation that are inaccessible and that relegate people with disabilities to their homes. Not only that, what I've dealt with the most is the rampant discrimination and ableism in the education system, specifically for children with disabilities and how it impedes our ability to go to college, attend college, finish college, and even sustain employment. It's legal in the United States to pay disabled people below minimum wage. So they're literally being paid less than the average person because our disabled bodies and our labor is not of value to this country. And the law says so. As I said, it is something that I do want to be able to talk on is like some of the issues facing disabled people and right issues of ableism, as you said, this, uh, you know, week marks the, you know, uh, um, uh, disability people with disabilities act in America. So can you talk about that, give an introduction to our legislation for somebody who doesn't know about that law? You know what? The ADA was passed in 1990 and I am the post-ADA generation. The ADA was signed on July 26th. I was born on December 31st, 1990s. I have never lived life without the legal protections as outlined in the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the law specifically bars discrimination on the basis of disability in education, public spaces, healthcare, social services, and education. And it increased and expanded accessibility in public spaces. The law was made to transform the country and to create a more accessible world for people with disabilities so they could be able to thrive. We would have something to go to court for if we were experiencing discrimination based on disability. So for example, the disabled community in the United States has a 10% unemployment rate. This is because it is very easy for employers to fire a person with a disability. In the United States, we have at will hiring and firing. So you have less job protections. It is hard for disabled people to sustain employment because despite the ADA being law, it is hard to prove discrimination and specifically the right to reasonable accommodations in school and public spaces. I benefited from the ADA because I was a disabled child and I went to school uh, in the U.S. public education system so I could have accommodations such as being a little bit late to class because I had a walking disability. It took me longer as a result of my disabilities to get to class, but I experienced discrimination despite having reasonable accommodations. In my school and in my classes, if you were late to class and you turned in the homework, you would receive a reduction in grade if you were late, like physically late in class. My high school was a four-floor school, and I'm a person with a walking disability. I didn't have a wheelchair for all four years of high school. I didn't have it until I was in my 20s. I would be penalized for being late, given detention. And my school, the rule was students could not use the elevator. 
But since I had a walking disability, I was allowed to use the elevator. But the elevator required a key to operate. And my school refused to give me a key. So effectively, how am I supposed to get to class on time? I've pa I passed out more than once trying to get to class. That's an example of a violation of the ADA. And I eventually got tired after sophomore year. And I contacted the school board and I told them the discrimination I'd been experiencing at my high school. They called, they got me the elevator key. That was my first taste of, of real social justice and how to use the system and the law, the ADA, to get what I needed as a disabled young, young person. I was saying then, I think from what you were saying, with the act, the legislation, we can give people a chance to challenge an ethical and lawful blessed practice that could prevent you from having the access to the things that you need, as you're saying, like having an elevator to like go up into a different floor of your school and be able to ensure that you school rights and your employment rights to like education and to the accessible and affordable employment are met but when you say like you have the issues of the legal challenges then I guess with the, the illegal action as it stands then for some do would be have like less affordable income then it must be quite harder because to actually afford the ability to challenge the law and be able to get uh, it to go to court? Factual. Whenever I write or tweet about, I'm a writer, I've been published by CNN, The Huffington Post, NBC News. And whenever I write about the discrimination I've, I've experienced, whether it's on Twitter or in my articles, the first comment is, why don't you sue? But the reality is a lot of disabled people don't have lawsuit money. <laughs> And so it's not as easy as, hey, here's this law. There's, it's The ADA is not effectively being enforced at all. There are so many gaps. We're grateful for this law, but what happens when it's not enforced? And we don't have the economic capacity to spend years and years in courts and fighting corporations, companies, for what, what we are legally entitled to. I'll give you an example. I know they have Uber in the U.K., but here in the United States, we have Uber as well. We have Lyft. And we have had to fight for wheelchair accessible Uber. Here, my friends who are able-bodied can just call an Uber. It'll be there in six to seven minutes. For me, I've been left stranded in my city in D.C., the city I was born in. Last week, particularly, I my friend passed away. I was speaking at his vigil and I was left stranded because after 10 p.m. I could not get a Uber wheelchair to wheelchair accessible vehicle to take me home. So I ended up having to spend a lot of money to sleep in a hotel. Very few hotels are accessible and ADA compliant. And the hotel room I ended up getting, it was partially accessible. It was filthy. And I could even hear mice in the air conditioning vents. So the accessibility that they think is present just because the ADA exists, there are barriers everywhere you go. And specifically when we want to talk about narrative, specifically within the context of race and disability, in the United States, we have special education. And oftentimes autism and neurodivergent uh, disabilities are mislabeled as intellectual disabilities, when in reality, it's just a developmental disability, right? So in the United States, we have special education and we have this thing called the special education to prison pipeline, meaning black and brown kids who are neurodivergent, who have developmental disabilities often are funneled from the special education system into prisons. We have a police force in all of our schools where instead of counseling children or learning to understand their disabilities, they're arrested, they're detained. And they're set up to be put into prisons. And we have a prison industrial complex. We have a for-profit prison system here in the United States. So companies make money off imprisoning children. And a lot of those children are Black, Brown, and neurodivergent. So the ADA, it exists, but it's not protecting all of us.
when you can't be able to have the, the resources to afford to take things to law, it wouldn't be able to be for everywhere something that'd be universal because as seen you gotta have the money to be able to use the law and challenge the law to sue people. Because from my understanding about the American system, it's like with the pain for your own health care and not always guaranteed health insurance by seeing the culture higher and failing and trying to get rates pay like what the things based things you need in your life. You can't go through all that. Somebody who is disabled and urgent, then it can be a lot get a job and get a good income. And as you're saying that, there's definitely like layers of inequalities when it comes to intersectional groups within the disabled community. And I is definitely quite a massive problem then when as you say not you got that kind of funnel route from like the school's special educational system to actually prison system going to being sentenced, going to jail, and then the fact of that your disability looking like a crime. People can see that for you were sitting with autism and like what could be like meltdowns, sensory overloads, and struggling with the environment of the school place being seen as like some sort of threat and something that they can, you know, arrest you for, charge you for now is something that like is failing in America, it seems. Very prevalent. That's one of the huge problems of the law, that it's not standing up to what it's supposed to be doing. Yes, not just that. The ADA is just the beginning. Uh, For some strange reason, a lot of our legislators feel like disability rights stopped at the ADA and that we don't need additional policies to protect the rights of disabled people. Um, The law, as well-intentioned as it is, there needs to be another version of it or another expansion on the law or new legislation entirely to ensure the, the needs of disabled people are getting met. In addition to that, dealing with mass incarceration and how it affects people with disabilities and how a significant number of, I mean, the United States have, out of all the countries in the developed world, we have one of the highest incarceration rates. And those people behind the bar, uh, behind bars tend to be those with disabilities. That's what the ADA can't seem to address. So we need new laws and policies that address the ever-changing issues that are affecting the disabled community, specifically poverty, incarceration, equity in education. For some strange reason, a lot of our legislature doesn't think don't think issues evolve and the needs of specific demographics don't change over the years. But it has been 33 years since the signing of the ADA. Naturally, what's needed for the, for the disabled community in 2023 is much different than in 1990. Even with universal basic health care, things that, I mean, we say in the United States that you're one bad day away or one accident away from becoming completely impoverished. And disability should not mean poverty. In the United States, we have a large issue of lack of accessible housing and lack of affordable housing for people with disabilities. So a significant number of our homeless population are disabled people. I'm a child of West Africans. America to many parts of the world is seen as the greatest nation in the world. I vehemently, as a disabled person, I vehemently challenge that because in the greatest nation in the world, there shouldn't be a disabled person begging on the street. This country has entirely too much wealth. It really gets me because this country has all the resources it needs to empower disabled people and give them what, give our community basic living standards. There should be no person with a disability living in squalor. But even our system of disability, it's a poverty trap. If you are on public assistance in the United specifically, disability, you cannot have more than $2,000 in your savings account. So you can never save to elevate yourself into better living conditions, into a higher income status. So you can afford to pay 
the mountains of medical bills that come with being disabled in the United States. It is a constant tug of war with me and my wallet of what <laughs> services I have to pay for this week. As there's a big misnomer with organ transplant recipients that once you have an organ transplant, everything's fine, you're healthy for the rest of your life. The first thing they tell you after you have your organ transplant is you are gonna be on medication for the rest of your life. Your immune system is now compromised. There are gonna be places you can't go and you'll be more susceptible to infections. So I take around 22 pills a day and that's pretty expensive. Yeah. I work full time. I work a nine to five in addition to my advocacy work. And though I have not experienced poverty in the same sense as my friends who've been cut off from disability services, cut off from food stamps for having more than $2,000 in their savings account. I weep for this country. I can understand how you would feel like you would for it because it is very dispiriting and just it's hard to describe the feeling for how it can be for a country one of the wealthiest countries in the world and has got quite a lot of financial resources but isn't actually spreading our wealth and making sure that disabled people and people who are in poverty there hasn't been much change from that legislation as uh, that happened 30 years ago. And uh, probably when the legislation was being made, it might have not been informed by voices like yourself that come from that diverse background and understand like the issues with like an unequal education to like the issues of the prison system to who understand some of the country's class struggles because I think probably with the legislation and any legislation that should come afterwards and any policy around disability, then I think from what you're saying for it to progress would need to be informed by those minority groups in society that are people who are, who are falling to the category or disabled, who are living in poverty in working class, but are struggling to get anyway on on the way up, racial minorities who are disabled, who have like, like autism, who are treated like a prisoner or like a criminal for what is their neurodivergent behaviour in the wrong environment. It's trying to find, like, it's important that actually we start to see that, like, the system or, like, the politicians, the lawmakers who have the power to change legislation to actually be able to think about changing it or like like evolving things because it's something that needs to live and evolve. In terms of neurodivergence and the United States issues with police brutality, many would be surprised to know that 50% of people killed by the United States police are disabled. And a strong number of those people are people who are neurodivergent. And particularly for a subsect of the uh, autistic and neurodivergent community in the United States, it's difficult having conversations. Parents have conversations with their black autistic children, or specifically black autistic children, males in police interactions because many police officers mistake anything that is outside of the quote unquote expected behavior our neurotypical behavior to be a threat to them. It's not safe to be a young black man in America, but just imagine how much more unsafe it is to be a young black autistic male. And your life is in the hands of people who don't care to understand disability, who, and neurodivergence isn't something that's visible. It's a, it's a hidden disability. And there's so many complexities with how do we effectively use the ADA if our disabilities are hidden and people can't see that we're disabled. Yeah. I, it, it, as someone who, I don't always have to use my wheelchair, um, even in the voting process, the disabled community is neglected. So when it comes to changing legislation, we do need more disabled politicians. 
but we're a voting populace that's generally ignored. I remember years ago trying to vote and standing up for a long time is a major issue for me. So the line is long and I asked for the accessible voting booth, which is where you can sit down and vote. And a black election judge or election staffer actually accused me of trying to pull the disabled card. He said the line for the accessible booth is longer than the regular line. But if you want to play the disabled card, And he walked a white elderly woman who appeared to be more disabled than me ahead of me. And I'm sitting down, you know, and after I vote, I tell him I've had such and such organ transplants. Don't ever accuse someone of trying to fake their disability or pull the disabled card. And he eventually apologized. But I'm I'm not neurodivergent. I can only imagine what yeah. the those who are neurodivergent with his basically it's hidden people not understanding your needs and the accommodations that are legally entitled you are legally entitled to. Yeah, it's when you said that fact of fifty percent of people killed by police in America not disabled that sadly and surprised with it but it's one of those things that during that is incredibly upsetting and as if you don't have been disabled or a disabled person of colour it's one of those things that can easily be ignored or forgotten about in society and like a part of how that the, how the current system is failing people they can't recognise that disabled people aren't protected by the police. The policing system is the problem. It seems in America from what I've seen is that you got a lot less voting booths and local scene photos of like queues that go around the block for good minutes long or hours long miles. So as somebody who has worked in areas of journalism, political comedy and with politicians, what are the ways that you would like to see people get more involved in politics and what would be the route to more disabled people getting involved in democracy? I believe that we need to make Election Day a federal holiday so everyone can have the day, um, nearly, not everyone usually has a day off on federal holidays, but most people have the day off on federal holidays. Make it so people don't have the burden of having to figure out their work schedule to go to the voting booth. Change the laws that make it so if you as a disabled person choose to run for office, you lose your disability benefits. Uh, My understanding, I'm going to have to research more before I make a complete valid strong statement, but you start earning more money, you can lose your disability benefits. You can lose your Medicaid, meaning you you literally have to stay impoverished to get health care in the United States and to get support as a disabled person. So the reason we don't have a litany of disabled politicians is because number one, we can't afford to run for office. It's not fair. It's not equitable. For example, I would say local election boards, national election policies need to change. For example, my blind friends shouldn't need, should should be able to come to their election site, their voting site, and have Braille ballots. They make it so even electronic voting is difficult for people with visual disabilities. There's so much inaccessibility to voting that it's a problem. Even selecting inaccessible voting sites, only having one accessible voting booth when there are dozens of disabled people living in that community. In my community, there's so many disabled people because I live near a retirement home. So we're waiting hours (laughs) for one tiny accessible booth to open up and more outreach to the disabled community to figure out our policy needs. I want voting to not just be an in-person experience. I want the entire country to have the opportunity to vote by mail. But in the, in the United States, there's big political contention in allowing vote by mail because when vote by mail happens, <laughs> it, they, votes tend to lean more liberal. <laughs> so there have been many politicians who've tried to get rid of mail-in voting by claiming it 
allows voter fraud and makes us more susceptible to voter fraud, which is a lie. So I want more politicians to meet with disabled people and not just one type of disabled person. Typically when you see politicians meeting with disabled people, it's veterans. So it's the disabled people they have respect for because they became disabled. They were once like them and they became disabled fighting for the country. They're not viewed as leeches of the system. They're viewed as disabled by the system. So it's typically the interest of white conservative disabled people that gets pushed to the forefront. Remarkably, 40 plus percent of voters disabled voters, 40 plus percent of disabled voters voted for Donald Trump in 2016. This was after he mocked a disabled reporter. So as you can see, conservative values reign supreme in our community because the mic is typically passed to non-marginalized disabled people, meaning you can be marginalizing your disability, but in terms of racial marginalization, economic marginalization, the mic is typically passed to white disabled people of means. The disabled community as a whole needs to be listened to by politicians. That it tends to be like focused on the right male disabled voter, who mm-hmm. is usually a veteran and has a military past, and kind of going off that tokenistic, patriotic angle of more as a PR stunt than actual real engagement with the community. And so I guess it's trying to make it so that there's a way of politicians not taking disabled people for granted and actually engage with disabled people. And as saying that, for hiring them and and hiring hiring them them on the campaign and not just in the token disability position, like I'm this person working on disability advocacy on such and such as campaign. They need to have disability implemented throughout their entire campaigns, multiple people with disabilities working in different facets. And when they get elected, don't abandon us because that's usually what happens. We're used for props for photo ops by politicians and then years later, they don't even know us. So hire disabled people, bring them into your staff and circles. So you are constantly reminded of the needs of our community. As a disabled person, what is your experience of working in politics, like the political environments of American politics? How is that informed your view of how politics works for disabled people or doesn't in America? I will say it's a very ableist environment working in politics in the U.S. I'll be invited to speak at an event and there won't be a ramp for me to get on in my wheelchair. I'll be the only person in the room who has a visible disability. And then I'll be surrounded by people with hidden disabilities who don't even feel comfortable talking about their disabilities with anyone but me. And I'll be sworn to secrecy. The culture of working in in politics and having to hide that you're dealing with an immune condition and you still have to come to work. And the suggestion is that you don't come masked. Having to watch people struggle that politics is not built for disabled people to survive. It is a 24 hour, seven day a week job. Your cell phone never stops ringing. If you deal with chronic fatigue like I do, you're not getting much sleep. There are some powerful points where you see the work you do manifesting in legislation and you feel like there's a job well done. But I feel like politics needs to be more accessible in terms of flexible hours, in terms of making these tight spaces accessible to the disabled and making it affordable. Uh, I will say this, working on Capitol Hill, you have to oftentimes be a person of privilege. You have to be able to work for pennies, peanuts. And that's why the Hill is dominated with staffers from wealthy backgrounds who don't know what the communities, like marginalized communities need. Uh, It's a deficit of people of color. It's a deficit of women. I first became involved in politics when I challenged my school using the aid by contacting a school board member to get an elevator key that the school denied me. And I was like, this is politics. I feel like I'm in control. I feel like I have some control over my destiny. I'm not at the whims of an able-bodied person who gets to control me. As a result, when I was 16, 17 years old, then Senator Barack Obama spoke 
at a local community college. Me with my walking disability and my inability to stand, I went with two of my girlfriends and we stood in line for hours to see him speak. He spoke about healthcare and how his mom died of cancer trying to pay the bills. And I was so moved and inspired by him. I wanted to work in the White House one day. And I applied two or three times to get into the White House internship because I was not accepting no for an answer. He brought forth the Affordable Care Act. It changed my life. I would say it saved my life. Here in the United States, we don't have universal free health care. So the minute you turn 18, back in my day, you were kicked off your parents' insurance unless you were in school for some insurance companies and some jobs. And so I would be sick as hell and still in college because what's the alternative? Dropping out of school and not having, not being able to pay for my medication. So the ACA came about and it it eliminated discrimination. Like you couldn't get health insurance with my list of health problems. So if I left school, I wouldn't be able to have insurance. With Obama's Affordable Care Act, what they call Obamacare, it gave me freedom. My dad's health insurance couldn't kick me off. I got cancer treatment because of the ACA, because I was able to stay on his insurance. And so when I was interning in the White House, when I was on the White House African-American Kitchen Cabinet on Disability, I got to speak at a civil rights event at the White House. I got to see people... I I eventually got to meet President Obama and shake his hand and thank him for saving my life due to the ACA. And in that room, I was, that day was one of his last days in office. Um, It was the signing of the Centuries Cure Act, which is cancer legislation, like the cancer moonshot bill, providing um, money for cancer research. I saw all these people in the room who benefited from his work in healthcare. And that's why I was like, this reminds me why I got into this business. This reminds me why I became an advocate because politics as corrupt as it can be, and as much of it's a house and warehouse for the wealthy, um, there are still very real people uh, in the room who aren't of a higher class status, who are impacted by the work that we do. It must have been quite something to being able to Thank him personally for that. And then the, the fact that for anybody who returns 18 in America without having that bill and have like any chronic health conditions or any like having multiple disabilities, that can be cause for anxiety and really strain on your mental health, thinking that you can't afford any operations, any medical treatments or medication that you would need when when you turn 18 and write out and the capital L. It seems like a space that's almost quite far away from the rest of the country. The people who work on the hill aren't engaged with the more poverty backgrounds in America and the communities in America. People are forgetting all the hundreds of millions that you're working for fighting for right and left, the, the day-to-day politics that central government focuses on that legislation like what became the Obamacare package was important for disabled people from working-class backgrounds. In terms of American politics, from what I found is that with the politics being quite bipartisan, can be quite divisive and polarising, then he was quite daunting then after that he left office. Seeing that legislation trying to be torn apart, it was quite dispiriting, then all difficult. Then to see like the next government try to take Ted that away. In terms of the bipartisan nature of American politics, how does it feel like that the like certain legislation in American politics? that has progressed to protect disabled people from more working-class backgrounds. On its peril, if it's down to sound politics and divides politics, how does that culture of politics feel as a disabled person? We do live in a very partisan political climate yeah. here in the U.S., 
And since Obama has left office, though we've gotten greater protections through the ACA, one thing Obama did that was paramount was he used the federal government to try and influence disability hiring in the private sector. So he created an affirmative action program called the Schedule A program to hire more disabled people in the federal government and to reach those benchmarks. Not all of those agencies have reached those benchmarks and the government has a high turnover rate for people with disabilities. Maybe to people outside of the country, we've made progress with people with disabilities and we have. We've made huge project pro, um, progress specifically with the ACA and a lot of the work the Obama administration did. But because of the partisan nature of American politics, I will say, other politicians have spent their entire time in office since he's been gone trying to roll back these protections for people with disabilities, including Senator Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. He specifically tried to gut the Affordable Care Act if it wasn't saved by late Senator John McCain. They celebrated a Supreme Court decision that it eliminated the individual mandate for Obamacare or for the ACA. I mean, Mitch McConnell celebrated it as, as gutting the essence of the heart of the ACA. When Trump was in office, there is research showing higher incidents of disabled people leaving the federal government. It was, in a sense, a push out <laughs> because there was an ableist president in office. So as much advancement as we've made, living within the U.S., you've seen states and state governors reject Medicaid expansion that in, in conjunction with the ACA to allow poor people to have greater health care access and preventative health care services. So as much progress has been made that we should always celebrate, we have to keep our eyes open in ways that politicians and bipartisan politics are trying to roll back the progress. I'm aware that there are many activists like yourself and different organizations trying to make sure that progress is furthered and any progress that has been done is retained. I see that some of the greatest achievements has been done to create uh, like uh, young non-profit organizations and foundations. So can you tell me about the work that you've done with non-profit organizations and foundations and what has led you to start those organizations? So I've been lucky to work on the boards of Lady Gaga's nonprofit, the Born This Way Foundation, and on the late General Colin Powell's foundation, America's Promise Alliance. I started my nonprofit Project Ascend when I was a college student. Um, I will say this, our organization is an education nonprofit. So we provide college scholarships to disabled youth to attend college. But we also have a separate grant program where we allot money to different youth-led organizations and youth-led service projects. So one of our projects, or one of our grant recipients is Give Back Nigeria. They used our grant to construct a library and an orphanage in Western Nadeau, Nigeria. So we are the, essentially, we are an education organization who wants to expand educational opportunities to people who are marginalized. I wanted to start my own organization. We've distributed over $30,000 in scholarships and grants. And I wanted to start my organization partly because when it comes to disability hiring, there are very few disabled CEOs, even within disability rights organizations. A lot of it is a charity complex. It's led by wealthy, able-bodied people who feel like they're giving something to disabled people by leading disability rights orgs or being, having philanthropy organizations. It's rarely us leading the conversations. It's us being led by well-meaning <laughs> but ableist non-disabled people. And it's time for that to change. I want more disabled founders and CEOs, less of the community being um, directly tied to the investment, ableist, able-bodied. What are the things that are inaccessible in the college system 
the for disabled people in America? Uh, the, a lot of the top colleges are inaccessible. Well, I would say like they're historically inaccessible, meaning there are ways in which they can evade the ADA because they have historical buildings that they're not required to update. Also, just the fact that college is inaccessible to many disabled people because of the poverty trap of disability. If you cannot afford your medication, how can you afford a textbook? How can you afford college tuition? College professors, administrators, they will fight tooth and nail against an accommodation. Some of the most heinous, ableist things and push disabled people out of the classroom because they feel that their presence or their disabilities are a distraction. I have tons of friends who are college educated who regard college as a traumatic experience for them because of the onslaught of ableism, inaccessible dorm rooms. I remember my first dorm room when I was a college student, I transferred colleges. I transferred from Howard University to the University of Maryland. And at Howard, the first dormitory they gave me the dorm room, there was three people to a room, group shower, um, which was not something I could do because I have, I'm immune compromised. I can't share showers. There was no air conditioning. What? I mean, this is 2008. That's not accessible. There are so many problems with getting disabled people into college and keeping them there. And the, and one of the, the issues that my nonprofit focused on was cost. We are able to give these scholarships and lessen the burden. It seems to be the main contribution of factors to disabled people in America to feel unequal is the cost of living, whether it's university, getting a job, in ways that abled people can. It's quite good that you've managed as an organisation to focus on areas of the cost, give people a chance to go to... We're, we're mostly just giving a chance of, of whoever applies to go to college. Yeah. We don't work with specific organizations. I mean, just like there are historical civil rights organizations yeah. that are the go-to, we don't want to necessarily work with the establishment. We want to create yeah. our own avenues without having to go through the barriers, hoops, and things yeah. like that. I guess you're just trying to make sure that... You can have the agency and control of your organization, your organization's funding rather than, as seen, working like more with the university college establishment. Yes, we are funded by donations. We've gotten grants from the American Association for People with Disabilities, Zipcar Corporation, and MTV. And you mainly like focusing on the costs, but... As I say that for uh, like a dis- disabled people in America, as you said for yourself, that like some of the colleges, you know, aren't accessible in terms of the environment for disabled people. So how do you find it as a person leading in an organisation that focuses on making the education more accessible? How do you find it when you hear off stories of, you know, that colleges and the school environments not accessible for students? I try and amplify their stories. I have a little bit of a following on Twitter. So if I get a story from a student who's having difficulty or DM, I try and link them with different organizations or services that can champion for them. Because there are a number of like other disability nonprofits who in lieu of mine, can be more assistant to disabled people who are facing discrimination and issues within their institutions, within their colleges and institutions. That's good that you find the right resources and the right places to get support and gather support to be able to really be engaging with the people at the heart of who, who your organisation is for. I'm a British person and looking at American politics, American life, just somebody who hasn't lived in America. So what does the person outside of America know about and think of in terms of life being disabled in America? I am not sure. I mean, I have some friends who are, I have a few friends who are disabled and living in different countries. And I think there's a misnomer that, you know, accessibility has been achieved completely in America and that we have all the rights we need, that America is a safe haven for the sick. 
when it's pretty much bankrupting the chronically ill. So those are the myths that people who aren't from here believe. American democracy recently there's been to get disabled people to vote. There's been the campaign Crypt the Vote. And so what are your experiences of campaigns and collective organization and work to get disabled people more involved in politics to to turn out to vote and also get politicians listen to them and form movements such as Crip the Vote and any other disability rights political movements. What do you think that people should know about such movements and how do you think other countries could learn from such a, you know, like collective movements that also engage through online spaces? America has a tendency to overstep its bounds and try and educate everyone else. I think America can, can learn a lot from other countries when it comes to disability. I will say this, AAPD, um, the American Association of People with Disabilities, they have a, a great rev up the vote campaign. And I think more needs to be done collaboratively with other uh, disability rights organizations, not necessarily learning from how Americans do it, but tailoring voting rights campaigns to the needs of that specific country. Because voting is much different here than it is abroad. We have the Electoral College, yeah. which makes absolutely no sense. The person with the most votes should win the presidency. But the Electoral College was created as a result of wanting to give more power to Southern politicians to reduce women's rights and keep slavery alive because it was based on population. So Black people, including enslaved Black people, were counted as three-fifths of a human being. And so in states with high Black populations, the Black people couldn't vote, but there'd be a high number of representatives and that, that state would get a higher number of electoral votes. It's obvious that we need to abandon this system. I, I, I think the Electoral College system makes people less likely to vote of all backgrounds particularly marginalized people, because it feels like the system is not reflective of the needs of the people. Because if the person who doesn't win the popular vote, who is literally the least popular politician in terms and didn't win the most votes is, is becomes president, then less people will vote. Why would I stand in line for hours as a disabled phone, uh, person if I feel like my vote doesn't count? Why do we all, it's, it's just ridiculous. It can be quite a big factor in deciding whether you would vote at all. When posing the question, as I understand it, in terms of the economy and the laws around supporting disabled people, yes, America can learn from, us from so many different countries, but in asking from what I understand about British disabled politics and the conversation to America conversation. There's a lot of energized collective campaigning about disabled issues, about the wider disabled community and how you are coming out different campaigns can be looked at and as an example of how a community works together. Oh, I completely understand because it seems like we are in the US, we might have more of a community organizing amongst yeah. the disabled politically active community. And I think a lot of that organizing comes from the digital media age and um, comes from people collectively talking about the issues on social media. It really inspires these nonprofits to work with social media influencers to ask them to have people participate in these campaigns. Even the written word. I see during the general elections, I often see op-eds written by disabled people about what voting rights issues matter most to the community or what issues in general policies. So I think that I will say from my perspective, I think journalism and digital media has allowed us to organize more as a community. What are the key things do you think in terms of what you want as a dis- like as a person, like in your country, what are the things that you would like to see change? Oh my God, I'd like to see employment discrimination change. I'd like to see healthcare no longer tied to employment in the United States. Literally people stay in jobs that they hate because 
the health insurance is so good. I'd like to see less mass incarceration of people with disabilities. I want mass incarceration eliminated completely. I want police taken out of schools. It's legal in the United States for disabled children to be subjected to electroshock therapy in school. And a lot of those kids who are being, who are being abused are neurodivergent, developmentally disabled. With that being said, I want the end of abuse of disabled children. I want the end of po the poverty trap of disability and Medicaid. I want better for my community. What I want is survival. I want humanization. I want us to be given the indelible rights written in the age. I want us to have confidence. That's one of the most major things I think about. I mean, we're, we're from two different countries, but yeah. one thing America is known for is our entitlement. And as terrible as that entitlement is, I want more disabled people to be entitled. I want us to stop being grateful for crumbs. I want us to stop thinking that our existence as people is a burden to society. The minute you know that you have rights and you are, you, these things are not only owed to you, it's basic. You are entitled to have the right to freedom, life, and liberty and justice. And unless you demand it and unless you stand firmly and be confident and love who you are as a disabled person in a society that tells you you're worthless, then things, things start to change for you just internally, how you carry yourself, how you feel about yourself. And a lot of the people that I work with, a lot of us struggle with confidence, but I surround myself with confident disabled people who've shown me my value, who've mentored me. So I want more disabled mentors. I just want the world for my community. And I, I know we're closer to getting it each and every day. That matters. Um, one of the things I like to tell people is the disability rights movement was inspired by the, the civil rights movement in America, which was founded by Black people. And there's a portion of the civil rights movement that's called the Black Pride Movement. A lot of what people misconceived about the Black Pride movement is look at these arrogant Black people. Why do they feel so entitled? Even to this day, when we advocate for racial justice, it's called you're entitled. And nothing scares people more than a confident, marginalized person. So be in your wheelchair, be in your walker, be with your cane, be with your service dog, and shake the world up with your confidence. Anxiety is natural. Fear is natural. Being traumatized by this ableist society we're living with, these are natural feelings. But the way you change things and the way you start revolutions is being confident and saying, I'm here. These, these are my rights and I'm going to get them by any means necessary. It's something that as a right person, I would make, but not know not the thing of how like the disability rights movement started. And like dis disability rights is something that is not like taught in school and history of it if it is to be taught and if you are to learn this degree of disabled rights you would need to know how it started with the civil rights movement is there anything that you think that you want to say that you haven't said if you want to follow my work you can follow me on twitter instagram or tiktok and my name is ola's truth on all plat media platform so it's at symbol O-L-A-S underscore truth, T-R-U-T-H, Ola's underscore truth. You can follow my work and follow my advocacy. I would like to thank, thank Ola Ojumi again for coming on the podcast. And if you're listening, they're on uh, Acast, uh, supported platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcasting platforms. If you want to find more about Ola or Jerome's work, I'll be featured in the article on the website. I'll feature about the transcript where you can read the interview, and you'll be able to get links to that in the episode descriptor about where you can read all of that and where you can find and follow her. Ola Ojirumi, as well as if you go on to at New at Rainbow Cast Player on YouTube and New Rainbow Project on uh, Facebook, as well as Instagram, uh, TikTok. There, uh, convention will be uh, the videos to watch of that, as well as 
video clips, bite-sized clips from this interview for you to watch and uh, see a lot, see this interview with Ola Ojumi. And as I said, thanks to again and thank you for listening. And just to remind you at the end of the podcast, uh, until the end of this year, you'll be able to um, get a 5% discount code with the Weppers site Passfireadix. If you like myself, would like to try an adult size Passfire like how I use myself, which helps my stamina and sensory comforts. Uh, you can get 5% discount with Passfire Addict. You might be heard me uh, mentioning this with my interview with uh, DJ Lucky Light, where, we, where she chats about how she used the Passfire up until the age of 10, and how when she was 19, she started using adult-sized Passfire. And it's something that with autism has helped <clears throat> calm herself with, like, Sensory comforts and oral fixations. And it's something that I was glad to be able to get a 5% discount code on a very affordable and good quality adult pacifier company, pacifieraddicts.com. It's if you want to make you happy, that's the only place for first time consumers. So if you're in making so that, go until. The end of the year, but the discount code is Neurocast. So take line for first time customers when you order online on your first purchase at Pacify Addicts. And this will be linked in with a new podcast series as trailed uh, last week that they'll be pacifying with Autistically are coming in January, from Wednesdays from January the 10th. Well, start a limited series which will be go on for like three weeks and then come back le- maybe later on in the year and be like over a multitude of series. They'll explore sensory comfort and what comes and soothes us in a more over overly anxious world where things can get quite a lot and overstimulating. So that will be what the podcast pacifying with artistically are will focus on and as this as i will say that if you want to get ahead and you know like follow that podcast head of its songs you can do it by listening right now go over to uh your the same podcast platform you're listening to this and searching it uh pacifying with artistically are and there you can subscribe and follow the show ahead of its launch next year. There'll be more details on the social media at newrainbowproject.com if you got if you went to on the social media actually New Rainbow Project at New Rainbow Project and at Pacify with Autisticlia on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook on those uh, social medias as well as on the website w newrainbowproject.com and any correspondence for that podcast email pacifying at newrainbowproject.com and this again was uh, the interview with Ola Ojumi on the first part of the uh, Disabled in America series for the New Rainbow Project on New Artistically Arts New Rainbow cast and thanks again for listening Hope to see you next week. Goodbye.